Chapter Five of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Five. Dulcie asks questions. Despite his promise, Sir Everard did not go back to the drawing room immediately on leaving his office. He went straight to his study a cosy room lined with books from floor to ceiling where he generally spent his mornings there was a shaded lamp burning on the small round table near the fire and the red light of the logs was reflected cheerfully on the gay colours of the tiled hearth dark green velvet curtains were drawn before the one wide window everything suggested snugness and seclusion sir everard sank with a weary air into his chair by the hearth and lay back with closed eyes, resting from his labours. "'What an obstinate fool the fellow is,' he said to himself. "'And how strange that this monomania of self-accusation should crop up as often as it does. Yet there's a part of his story that sounds true. The watch and chain were pledged at Great Barford. That fact came out at the time, and the police tried to follow up the clue, ineffectually.' The warning bell rang while he sat thinking by the fire, and Sir Everard went upstairs to change his black velvet lounging jacket for evening clothes, leaving Vargas to his fate. Domestic life at Fairview could not be hindered in its quiet course, because a self-accused criminal was anxious to deliver himself over to the law. Sir Everard's valet was in attendance in his dressing-room, a man of about five-and-thirty, tall, slim, with insignificant features and a faded complexion, redeemed by clever-looking grey eyes, a very superior person altogether, and looked up to by the household. His master had picked him up at the gates of the Hôtel des Invalides in Paris, where in an impecunious interval he was trying to earn a franc or two by acting as a guide to inquiring-minded tourists. He was a man who had seen life under curious aspects. Starting as the scapegrace son of a country parson, he had cut short his university career by a boyish folly, and had then and there turned his back upon what society calls respectability, and what he called philistinism. He had dug a deepish hole in the paternal purse during his college days, but had made a manly stand against any further dependence upon his father. I'm not fit for anything but a wandering life, and I'd better be a waif and stray abroad than a burden at home, he said. After arriving at this decision, he had enjoyed a varied career as courier, waiter, billiard marker in France and Switzerland, had acquired all sorts of odd, out-of-the-way talents, and had finally found himself in Paris, without friends or credentials, face to face with starvation, when Sir Everard Courtney heard his story, believed it, and took him into his service. Never had master a better servant, or one who seemed more conscientious in the performance of his duties. "'There is rather a queer character in my office, Stanton,' said Sir Everard. "'You'd better tell Scroope to keep his eye on the plate-room, and tell them to let me know when the constable comes. I shan't want you.' Everything necessary to the baronet's toilet had been put ready. The valet retired quietly, and Sir Everard began to dress. He was somewhat slower than his wont in the process of dressing, dawdled and lingered a little, 
took things up and laid them down again with a dreamy irresolute air was not this a day full of sad memories and those memories had been made more vivid by the tramp's confession he could hardly think about walter blake's murder without recalling his wife's untimely death which had happened on the same day he was on his knees beside the deathbed when the news was brought to fairview at last all was done quickly enough though he had lingered and sir everard went down to the drawing-room passing scroop in the hall as he went jackson went to highclere this afternoon sir everard said the butler not expected home before nine o'clock gilbert left word that he was to come here directly very good you can keep an eye on that man in my office he may be a thief i've turned the key in the door sir everard that is unnecessary go and unlock it at once and give the fellow a meal of bread and meat he looks half starved morton blake was sitting alone before the fire when sir everard went into the drawing-room well sir he cried getting up quickly and going to meet his host you have kept me a long time in suspense was there any truth in my suspicion is this man my father's murderer pray restrain yourself morton the man is in my opinion either mad or a rogue who for some occult reason accuses himself of a crime he has not committed then he has confessed he is the man cried morton hoarsely let me see him let me hear my dear morton this is a business in which you have no right to interfere no right no right i the victim's son absolutely none you must wait till the law of the land shall avenge your father's death if this man has spoken the truth which i strongly doubt and if he adhere to his statement by and by the business will be easy enough and you may have the satisfaction of seeing him hanged in highclere jail and may possibly be a happy man ever afterwards i shall be a more contented man anyhow when i know that my father's murderer has been punished answered morton resolutely well what is to be done next the man is in your office handcuffed in custody i suppose not yet i am waiting till jackson comes home from highclere don't look so savage morton the man is safe enough he wishes to give himself into custody he may change his mind and give you the slip no fear of that i have told scroop to look after him and scroop has locked him in sensible of scroop what kind of creature is he this devil if i described him at all i should call him a poor devil can't i see him without his knowing it so that i might identify him if he should escape i want to have the man's image in my mind the scoundrel who killed my father in the prime of life and vigour with all the world smiling on him and all the future full of hope can't i see him sir everard if you like to go round the house and look in at the office window you may see him plain enough i dare say the shutters were not shut when i was there but there's the bell and here's dulcie you'd better come to dinner no no answered morton painfully agitated i can't dine to-night you must excuse me sir everard 
Dulcie, she was standing close at his side, pale and watchful of his face. Forgive me, dear. I must go. I will come back later in the evening, Sir Everard, and hear what has happened. You won't play me false in this, will you? I believe the man has told the truth. I believe that retribution is coming after twenty years. Don't take the matter lightly. Remember, my father was your friend. Am I likely to forget that? His face is in my mind to-night. But in a matter of this kind, I must not let passion be my guide. However, I have happily very little to do here. I shall hand this fellow over to Jackson the constable, and then my work is done. But you must be reasonable, Morton. Affection must not make you unjust. Deeply as you must feel your father's death, it could be no satisfaction to you to hang an innocent man. Why do you take it for granted that this man is innocent? Morton demanded impatiently. Simply because he calls himself guilty. Real guilt rarely surrenders liberty and life uncompelled. I have not the least doubt that after having caused you all this painful agitation and me a good deal of trouble, the fellow will make his recantation to-morrow before the Highclere magistrates. Good night, said Morton shortly. Good night, Dulcie. He scarcely touched the hand she gave him as he passed hurriedly from the room. What a miserable birthday, thought poor Dulcie, as she and her father went across the hall to the dining-room. My birthdays have always been sad, but this is the worst of all. The father and daughter sat opposite each other at the snug round table, with Morton's empty place between them. There had been no special invitation for today's dinner, but the place was always laid for him when he was in the house. Dulcie gave one sad little look at the vacant chair, and then made believe to go on with her dinner, eating hardly anything. The solemn Scroop moved to and fro, with his underling following up and supporting him, as it were, and the two servants ministering assiduously to the wants of two people, utterly without appetite or inclination to eat, were an admirable example of domestic comedy in the much-ado-about-nothing line. From the clear soup to the wild duck, Scroop abated no iota of ceremony. Dulcie was longing to be alone with her father, but Scroop lingered affectionately by her plate with offers of lemon and cayenne. He insisted on her taking dessert, and when she had refused a bunch of purple grapes which might have tempted an anchorite, followed her up perseveringly with preserved ginger. He was very particular about the temperature of Sir Everard's claret, and made a good deal of play with the jug before he could bring his mind to the necessity of leaving father and daughter alone. During dinner they had talked very little, and only of indifferent subjects. Dulcie's eyelids were heavy with unshed tears. Sir Everard was grave and absent-minded. But at last, to the girl's infinite relief, Scroop and his subordinate withdrew, the latter respectfully drawing the door after him with his foot, and father and daughter were alone. Sir Everard wheeled his chair round and sat facing the fire. Dulcie crept round to the hearth, and took her favourite place on the fender-stool at his feet, with her bright head resting on the arm of his chair. "'Dearest father, 
i want you to tell me a great many things she said coaxingly yet seriously withal and her face was full of earnestness as she looked up at him there are some questions i can't ask morton will it make you very sad if i talk about the past i'm always sad when i think of the past dulcie whether you talk of it or no can make very little difference i want you to tell me about morton's father was he a good man he was a popular man good-looking clever open-handed that kind of man is generally liked and you liked him my dear what a question he was one of my oldest friends we were at rugby and at cambridge together yes i know but those friendships do not always last you might have altered toward each other afterwards i have sometimes fancied that there was a constraint in your manner when you talked to morton about his father or rather when morton had mentioned his father for i have seldom heard you speak of him of your own accord the terrible circumstances of his death make the subject a painful one oh yes i ought to have understood that but i have noticed that people get accustomed to any idea however dreadful and end by talking of it familiarly as if it were an everyday event i could never grow accustomed to the idea of walter blake's death that's because you are more sensitive than the common herd of people answered his daughter lovingly tell me dear father do you think the man in your office is really the murderer my love how can i tell there are some points in his story which to my mind bear the stamp of improbability yet if it be found that he is the man who disposed of the murdered man's property it will go hard with him to prove himself innocent supposing that he should wish to get his neck out of the noose into which he has thrust it should you be glad if he were found guilty if it were proved to the satisfaction of everybody that he is the murderer asked dulcie intensely earnest not glad dear yet it is a good thing that the perpetrator of a great crime should be discovered even after an interval of many years that he should be so lashed and goaded by his own conscience as to give himself up to justice yes it must be good it may serve as a warning to many think how sharp the sting of conscience must be when it can goad a man to the surrender of liberty and life oh poor creature sighed dulcie full of pity even for the vilest of mankind young and inexperienced as she was her mind and heart were large enough to comprehend and compassionate all sin and sorrow he must have been horribly tempted before he could commit such a crime was it starvation that drove him to it do you think his plea is something of that kind blake had treated him badly it seems revenge oh that is a fearful passion said dulcie one you will never know i hope little one answered her father tenderly and now dear we will talk no more about painful things oh, my poor dulcie what a sorrowful birthday not altogether sorrowful dear father to be with you is enough happiness for me is it dulcie asked her father bending down to look searchingly into the sweet fair face with frank blue eyes lifted lovingly to meet his own are you sure of that yet if i were to ask you to give up morton 
if you and he were doomed to be parted your heart would break have you not confessed as much as that does it seem inconsistent she asked is it impossible to love two people intensely you have given me to morton and i know you would never take your gift back i am not afraid of injustice from you but if such a thing were possible if you stood on one side and morton on the other and i were called upon to choose between my father and my lover what would you do i would cleave to you father i don't know which is the greater love but i know which is the more sacred you are more to me than all the world oh, my darling cried sir everard bending to kiss the earnest lips End of chapter five